You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started. Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist, hematologist, and an LLS volunteer. And I'd like to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we're going to be discussing AML, acute myeloid leukemia. We're also going to have a wonderful opportunity to get an update on the 2022 Society of Hematologic Oncology Annual Meeting and also an update on the BEAT AML Master Trial. And I want to take a minute just to reflect for a second. Essentially, when I was a medical student, which is a long time ago, the treatment for acute myeloid leukemia was seven and three, as we got to know that name. And it continued that way for so many years, so many years. And it has just been so exciting to see everything that's happened in the last few years and continues to happen. And so with that in mind, we're going to be joined by Dr. Aton Stein, who is the Chief of the Leukemia Service, Director of the Program for Drug Development in Leukemia, and Associate Attending Physician in the Leukemia Service Department of Medicine of Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center in New York. Uh, Aton, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Looking forward to the discussion. So I wanted to ask you about, you know, if you could reflect a little bit in terms of this great transformation in terms of what's available for treatment, both to understand the disease and also the treatment. What in your mind sort of allowed for all these breakthroughs? And actually, as you reflect on it, what would you say are the top two or three breakthroughs that you want us to know about? Yeah, it's a really good question. You know, uh, over my career, I've really seen this evolution from patients all receiving seven plus three to patients now having many, many more options. I think the thing that has allowed us to develop better treatments for acute myeloid leukemia has been the wider revolution in understanding molecular genetics and specifically the genetics of, or more generally the genetics of cancer and then specifically the genetics of acute myeloid leukemia and really the realization that acute myeloid leukemia isn't really one disease. The phenotype of having 20% or greater blasts is the same in every patient and how we define AML, but how you get to those 20% blasts or higher is different for many patients. So there are a variety of different cyto and molecular genetic abnormalities that singly and more usually in combination lead to the block and myeloid differentiation, which is the hallmark of acute myeloid leukemia. So understanding what those recurrent genetic abnormalities are that are most common in patients with AML allowed subsequent groups of researchers to develop therapies that more accurately were able to target those particular genetic abnormalities. I think that broadly speaking, there have been a couple of important advances. So one is that not only can we use differentiation therapy to treat acute promyelocytic leukemia by using atra and arsenic trioxide, but we can use differentiation therapy that targets other molecular genetic abnormalities in patients with 
AML to induce myeloid differentiation in those particular subsets, whether it's patients with IDH mutations or FLT3 mutations, that can lead to complete remissions. That's been number one. And I think the one of the most important advances has been the use of the BCL2 inhibitor venetoclax in combination with hypomethylating agents in patients with acute myeloid leukemia. That has given patients who are older adults a therapeutic option that is meaningful where therapeutic options didn't really previously exist. I'd like to delve into that a little bit further because in I'm going to use lung cancer as an example. The initial finding of EGFR mutations was the beginning, and now we can actually plot out, you know, a variety of different possible mutations. And it looks like perhaps 10 to 20% of patients with lung cancer will have one of those. In AML, with all the technology we have and gene sequencing and epigenetics, but approximately what percentage of patients will have something that's seen as identifiable, either in a sense cause or something that led up to the disease or the Achilles heel of the disease? A hundred percent of patients will have a genetic aberration that is thought to be or biologically understood to be the cause of the disease. What we don't understand is how, but most patients will have more than one of these genetic aberrations, usually two or three. And what we don't completely understand is how these aberrations interact with one another to cause the disease. You know, one of the things that people spend a lot of time on now is understanding the clonal evolution of acute myeloid leukemia, with the idea being that if you can identify whatever the ancestral or the earliest genetic mutation to develop is, and then if you can target that earliest genetic mutation, you can eradicate the disease because all of the other mutations that subsequently have developed on top of that original mutation will sort of go away with the eradication of the original mutation. So I think that the issue in AML has been that of the mutations that are most commonly seen, only about 30% of patients, maybe 35, 40% of patients will have a mutation that can be targeted. And that has been a little bit of a challenge. We're looking for other ways to target more common genetic aberrations like NPM1 mutations in patients with AML. And there are some therapies that are showing some promise. So I want to find out a little bit more about the SOHO meeting because so much came up that I think is interesting as it really reflects on just what we've been talking about. So my first question to you is some national meetings you walk away from and you say, wow, that was just amazing. And other meetings you feel like, geez, the changes were not as dramatic. Maybe give us that overview of this meeting. How did you find that being there was this year compared to others? Um, I think we're seeing really interesting incremental benefits in some of the therapies that are being developed. So I wouldn't say that there was anything that was immediately going to change practice, but there were interesting discussions about agents that are sort of in clinical development where the clinical trials are ongoing that may be practice changing in the future. One of those is the anti-CD47 antibody megrolimab, which is being investigated in a randomized phase three trial. There are, were sessions on immunotherapies and cellular therapies like CAR T-cells or NK cells for acute myeloid leukemia, something that to date hasn't really panned out for patients with AML. And then something that I spent some time talking about was a new class of small molecule 
uh, inhibitors called menin inhibitors, which are very, very exciting because it allows us to induce myeloid differentiation in a whole group of patients that we weren't previously able to treat with any sort of targeted therapy. So, yeah, what is menin? And tell us a little more about menin inhibitors. Yeah, so menin is a protein that is important in the pathogenesis of two subsets, at least two subsets, of acute leukemia, not just AML. In acute leukemia that has rearrangements at the MLL gene locus, which are otherwise known as KMT2A rearranged acute leukemias, the interaction of menin with that KMT2A rearranged protein really drives leukemogenesis through the upregulation of POX genes and other genetic pathways. These kinds of rearrangements are seen in patients with acute lymphoblastic leukemia. They're seen in patients with acute myeloid leukemia. And overall, they represent about 10% of patients with 5 to 10% of patients with AML. The other place that menin seems to be important is in patients with NPM1 or nucleophosmin mutations. Now, that's important because NPM1 mutations are the most common mutation in patients with AML. They occur in about 30% of patients with acute myeloid leukemia. And these menin inhibitors appear to have activity by, again, blocking the interaction of menin and, in this situation, the wild-type MLL complex, again, which can um, lead to myeloid differentiation. So it's exciting because if this approach is successful, you've basically then taken 40% of patients who didn't have a targeted therapy option that was previously available and now given them a targeted therapy option. And that will then lead to over 50 or 60% of our patients with acute myeloid leukemia having the ability to get a targeted treatment, usually layered on top of 7 plus 3 or azacitidine and venetoclax, that can improve their outcomes. That sounds great. I mean, honestly, to have a uh, personalized approach and a targeted approach obviously would be, a, for that many patients, would be a big, big advance. Maybe again, on a higher level, tell us a little bit about side effects of these, because if menin is involved in one important pathway for cancer cells, I suspect it's got other involvement in normal processes too. Yeah, so what's interesting is that, believe it or not, the side effect profile is very favorable. So there are about five different menin inhibitors, five or six different menin inhibitors in clinical development right now. Four of them have not had any data presented on them yet, so I, I can't talk about their potential side effects. But of the two compounds that are farthest along in clinical development, you know, we've seen a little bit of GI upset, a little bit of nausea and vomiting. But we're talking about, you know, grade one, grade two, nausea, vomiting, maybe a little bit of changes in taste. So all of these things have been really remarkably easy to tolerate. There really has been no significant effect on hematopoiesis, which I think is interesting. The thing that we do see that that is important is that, as with any differentiation agent, there is a risk of differentiation syndrome. You know, this obviously has had its most profound impact in patients with acute promyelocytic leukemia, where, you know, we all learn in fellowship that if you have a patient with APL and you give them ATRA or arsenic and they develop a differentiation syndrome where, you know, they get pulmonary edema or they get pleural effusions, um, you got to treat that with steroids because if you don't, then a patient can end up on a ventilator from sort of rapid respiratory decompensation. 
With these compounds, there is also a risk of differentiation syndrome as a general principle with the compounds that have been looked at. In fact, one of the compounds that's being investigated by Kerr Oncology, there was a fatal event of differentiation syndrome, which landed the clinical trial on an FDA hold for a short period of time. So I think that's the major toxicity that can potentially be life-threatening. It's not life-threatening if the physician catches it early, but if it's not attended to on time, then it can become a life-threatening issue. By the way, these drugs, will they be oral or will they be intravenous? These drugs right now are all oral. Yeah, I wanted to ask you also about, because, it, you know, again, if someone had brought up the idea of oral therapy for AML years ago, it really literally was unheard of. But what are some of the oral therapies? What, what were, again, some of the things presented at SOHO and just that you're reading about in the literature and working with? Yeah, so a lot of the targeted inhibitors, I think all of the targeted inhibitors are oral. So the menin inhibitors are oral, the IDH inhibitors are oral, the FLT3 inhibitors are oral as well, all of which were talked about at the SOHO meeting. I think uh, another really exciting thing to think about is that, again, the venetoclax, which is the BCL2 inhibitor, that is an oral therapy. And we now actually have oral hypomethylating agents. So the backbone of azacitidine and discitabine, there's now an oral formulation of discitabine called Incovi. Folks are working on an oral formulation of azacitidine. There's an oral formulation of azacitidine that's used in a different setting, which is slightly different than the IV formulation, but there's another oral formulation of azacitidine that's being investigated. And I think the important piece here is that, you know, if you think about an older patient with acute myeloid leukemia, the standard of care now for them is to get a hypomethylating agent in venetoclax. The hypomethylating agents in general are IV, but you can imagine a situation where once it's proven to be non-antagonistic one against the other, that you could give an oral hypomethylating agent with oral venetoclax and have an all-oral induction regimen. And in fact, many of us feel that azacitidine and venetoclax over the next three to five years will end up supplanting 7 plus 3 for all AML patients, regardless of their age, who have intermediate or unfavorable risk disease. I mean, this is crazy, right? But you can think about the five years from now, we might be saying, okay, Mr. Jones or Mrs. Smith, you have a new diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia. Here's a prescription for oral venetoclax and oral azacitidine. Go home, take it as prescribed. We'll be checking your blood work frequently to be sure you're not anemic or thrombocytopenic. If you'll come back in a month, we'll do a bone marrow biopsy and then you're done. And thinking that when I started doing this, to think that you could treat acute myeloid leukemia this way, I think everyone would have told you you were totally crazy. Absolutely. In fact, I have to say, I recall my first month on the wards as a third-year student, internal medicine was oncology, and it was leukemia. I mean, essentially, it was a leukemia service. And I, you know, I, I remember it vividly, and it's been 30 years, but because how sadly, how tough it is on patients. And Eitan, I'm just, I'll share with you also, I think LLLS knows it was a wonderful help, but my wife had AML about 20 years ago, and thankfully as well, but it's such a tough experience for people. Yeah. Let me ask you about cellular therapies for AML. So obviously there was all these new targeted therapies, and some are absolutely going to be life-changing. And what are cellular therapies for AML? Yeah, uh, right now we don't really have cellular therapies for AML. I think that's what it comes down to. So there's been a lot in the popular press and a lot of papers published on the use of CAR T cells for acute lymphoblastic leukemia, for 
for lymphoma. And then there was recently an article just published I saw last week in the New England Journal of Medicine for multiple myeloma. So these are cellular therapies that seem to be effective in those diseases. The issue with acute myeloid leukemia, twofold. I think one is, can you get a car to work in a patient with AML? But really related to that, and maybe more importantly, is that the targets that we have that are present on leukemic blasts are almost universally also present on cells required for normal hematopoiesis. So if you go back to the example of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, right, you can eliminate, completely eliminate someone's B cells and, you know, they'll be at higher risk of infections, but they'll live, right? So if you can knock out the cancer, you knock out their B cells and the patients live. You, you really can't knock out all myeloid cells in a human being unless you're willing to follow that up with an allogeneic stem cell transplant. So to date, the heart T cell therapies for patients with acute myeloid leukemia have been hampered by the need to have follow them very quickly with an allogeneic stem cell transplant. And often when a patient has relapsed to refractory AML, as you know, they're quite ill and going through the rigors of getting a CAR T cell can be very tough for them. Let me ask you about immunotherapy because in the solid tumor world, we're using immunotherapy for so many different diseases with some really spectacular outcomes. Do checkpoint inhibitors work in AML? You know, unfortunately, they really don't. So there are sort of scattered reports of efficacy. So there have been a couple of papers published in the post-transplant setting in patients who are relapsing of giving those patients checkpoint inhibitors and those patients subsequently going into a complete remission. Those remissions tend to actually happen most often in patients with extramedullary leukemia. It doesn't work so well on the bone marrow cells, but it works on extramedullary leukemia. That's been one experience. More generally, though, checkpoint inhibitors have not found a place. However, except in the one um, example of um, this monocytic checkpoint inhibitor called migrolumab, which is an anti-CD47 monoclonal antibody, and allows for reactivation of monocytes to recognize malignant myeloblasts. There's been interesting phase 1-2 data of megrolimab in combination with azacitidine, showing fairly high response rates in the 60 to 70% range. Whether that's going to translate into a survival benefit in the randomized phase 3 study, which is now fully accrued, I think remains an open question. So I want to ask you, obviously there's a lot of excitement in the leukemia community and in oncology in general about the LLS beat AML master trial. Can you give us an update? Yeah, so the LLS BDAML master trial is really exciting because it sort of gets back to what I was saying at the very beginning of our discussion, where you know we know that everyone has genetic mutations. Every patient with AML will have a genetic mutation that is theoretically able to be targeted. And what the BDAML master trial does is it allows for rapid screening of patients for whatever molecular genetic alteration they might have, and then allocating them to a sub-study with a therapy that specifically is thought to target that molecular genetic alteration. There are a number of um, sub-studies that are now open. There are a number of sub-studies that are now complete. I think one of the sub-studies I'm most excited about 
is uh, has to do with the menin inhibitors, which is what I talked about a few minutes ago. And that's because there's a sub-study for patients with MLL rearranged leukemias or NPM1 mutant acute myeloid leukemia that combines a menin inhibitor with the backbone of azacitidine and venetoclax. So that's really what we need to do, right? Once you know you've got a drug that works in the relapsed and refractory setting, you really want to move that drug up front as quickly as possible with the standard of care, sort of increase remission rates and cures from the get-go so patients don't end up relapsing. Eitan, I wanted to ask you about late and long-term effects of uh, leukemia therapy. You know, some of the short-term ones, I think the, the patient's experience has gotten somewhat easier, certainly than 30 years ago. But how about now with especially some of the newer therapies, the venetoclax, the azacitidine, what can patients expect and what should we as clinicians be looking for? Yeah. So with any differentiation agent, as we talked about earlier, IDH inhibitors, FLIP3 inhibitors, menin inhibitors, if they get approved, you really have to watch out for differentiation syndrome. That's mostly for the clinician, but it's also important to tell the patient that if they're experiencing shortness of breath, weight gain, lower extremity edema, not to blow it off and to bring it to the attention of the physician right away. All the therapies that are being developed are, you know, it's interesting, right? Because the therapy that we gave, 7 and 3, or that we still give to some patients, has a multitude of side effects. All the therapies that we're developing have many, many fewer side effects. And although nausea remains an issue, although cytopenias remain a, a major issue with all of our therapies, they're still much easier to tolerate than 7 and 3. I think one thing that's important to note is that some providers and some patients don't live in an area where blood products are easily available, especially in more rural areas. And, you know, the biggest side effects from our therapies come from having these cytopenias. So being sure that you have the blood supply to treat your patient effectively with red cells and platelets is going to be really, really important. All right. And finally, uh, what resources do you recommend for patients and families uh, going through this journey of treatment for AML? Yeah, I always recommend that they go to the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society website. I think that it is curated exceptionally well. It has information about resources and support groups that patients can get plugged into. And that's where I, and many big cities will have their own chapters of the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. There are also a very nice resources that for patients looking for clinical trials, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society will hook the patient up to try to connect them with a clinical trial. So that's my go-to recommendation for patients with acute myeloid leukemia. And I'll say to that ditto, because uh, yeah, that's what I've recommended. And, and also, honestly, it was very helpful to us as a family going through that same experience. So, well, I want to take a minute and just say, firstly, thank you so much to Dr. Stein. Eitan, thanks for being with us. You're welcome. This was a wonderful sort of update and and I have to say so encouraging about treatment for acute leukemia. Great update on the 2022 SOHO meeting that was just held and also on the BEAT AML master trial. Uh, And I'd like to thank all of you for listening to this informative episode on AML for this program and for a listing of all of our healthcare professional continuing education activities, podcasts, and healthcare professional resources, please visit lls.org CE.
For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center by calling 800-955-4572. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. And finally, I want to encourage all of you to sign up to receive notifications of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. We look forward to you joining us on future podcasts. Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting lls.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.